Hey guys, welcome to History in Today podcast with Sam Zellin and Katie Spinato. Uh, today we are doing compromises. So uh, how are you doing this week, Katie? Um, I'm doing good. I'm really happy that we're talking about compromises this week because they're very important to American history. Um, and we'll be talking about how they how they have worked, how they have not worked. Um, and then we're going to connect it to modern day like we always do. So it should be interesting. Mm-hmm. So uh, we've kind of grouped our compromises. Actually, before we before we go into the topic, I do want to say uh, our posting schedule has been a little erratic the last two weeks. That is mostly my fault. Um, I had an unexpectedly busy week. Uh, but as of today, this is going to be the last weirdly released podcast. Uh, we are hoping to do a late Wednesday release schedule from here on out. So expect that uh this week we are doing a wednesday so we're gonna have i guess two in one week but uh think of this as last week's and then wednesdays will be the new one uh but uh yeah so we're getting into compromises um we we did group the compromises uh do you want to talk about that or should i um i can talk about it so basically we put it together, whereas first we're going to begin by talking about compromises that were important to the creation of the Constitution, because as if you've read the Constitution before or parts of it, you can see that it has been composed of a variety of compromises that are essential to the way our country you know, began. Um, maybe not as essential today. Some are, some aren't. We'll, we'll get into it. Um, and then we are going to transition by talking about um, the three-fifths compromise, which kind of is in the Constitution, but it also transitions into the next topic of compromises that led to the Civil War. Um, And a lot of the compromises today that we will be talking about are related to um, the relationship between slave states and not slave states um, in the United States. So that's kind of how we've grouped it. And then we're gonna talk about modern day and how compromises play into the system today. Cool. So yeah, uh, I really like this topic. I think um, America's had a lot of compromises and still continues to try to compromise with things that really shouldn't be compromised on. So uh, it's a, it's definitely an important part of our history. But uh, to get into our first, our first compromise that we're going to talk about, it's one that's kind of near and dear to both of our hearts, even though neither of us were born here. We have been living in Connecticut for a very long time. And we go to the University of Connecticut. So the Great Compromise, or as we refer to it here, because we're you know biased, the Connecticut Compromise. Even though I guess biased or just kind of we like to call it, we like the pride of the the name. <laughs> Either one. Yeah. Well, uh, Roger Sherman was from Connecticut, so yeah. it makes sense. He was a delegate yeah. uh, <clears throat> alongside e. Ellsworth. Yes, Ellsworth was his name, uh, which actually was supposed to be the. Uh, um, residence hall i was living in this semester but uh thank you covid um, <laughs> so uh <clears throat> the connecticut compromise uh was a basically they had um, a bunch of they had a constitutional convention in uh 1787 and they had to decide how are we going to structure a government and most people at this point had decided that they didn't want to have a king well they, they all had pretty much decided they didn't want to have a king but they wanted to have this representative government. So the decided upon plan, or there were two of them, there was the Virginia plan and the New Jersey plan, and they both had splitting the government up. 
the Virginia plan originally having the structure of the three branches that we know today, with, which, is, uh, which are the legislative, the executive, and the judicial. But the legislative is where the, the real squabble came to be. So uh, Virginia, being the biggest state at the time, obviously said, you know, okay, our legislative branch and all the representatives we send there should be completely proportionate to size and population of state, which naturally someone in New Jersey, which would be the big opponent here, uh, or Rhode Island or Connecticut, really, or Delaware, really would not like this because then that's basically just saying Virginia runs the country. And uh, <laughs> so Patterson, uh, the New Jersey representative against Madison's Virginia, they butted heads very, very strongly, and neither of them were backing down. Now, uh, this is where Roger Sherman comes in. He said, what if we just have a bicameral legislature? And a bicameral legislature basically means that we have two houses, which are the ones we know and love today. Well, love is a stretch, but uh, the ones that we know today uh, as the Senate and the House of Representatives. So you want to talk about that? Um, yeah, so basically the structure of government that we have today is very interesting because as we will continue to go into, all of these compromises kind of made our government the way it is. Without these compromises, we would not have the... I don't, I don't know how you feel about this, Sam, but I feel like our government was very... is very detailed in the way that the the founding fathers went about creating it. I think that there, every single component, I guess how you could compare it is like gears to like a machine. I feel like all of the compromises that were, you know, talked about in the constitutional convention, like they, they all connect to one another and that creates the machine, I guess, that's our government. Yeah, um, I definitely, so think, I definitely of, think this one, but considering that the next one that we're going to talk about was also involved in that, I disagree a little bit that it was the yeah. gears in the machine yeah yeah it i would agree in the sense that i mean it, it they all played a part right but in over time they became irrelevant or they you know did not you know what i'm they trying to down. say they yeah. they broke down because they didn't work because times changed and the situation in the country changed but to get the country running, it kind of served as like the the stepping off point, I guess, the stepping stone. Mm -hmm. um, so in that sense, I don't know if you have any more to talk about yeah. regarding Connecticut Compromise or... Yeah, so I think, I think uh -huh. the Connecticut Compromise is a big one that like sets a big precedent about kind of the, the, the role compromise is going to play in America for the next 200 plus years up until this point. Where, when you when you get it, when you when you achieve a compromise that works for everyone at the table, uh, obviously doesn't you know all men are created equal is only the people that are there. Uh, <clears throat> when you achieve a compromise, you get a really good immediate effect where immediately everybody's happy. But the you know, just like what the Founding Fathers really did not plan for the future. I don't think they expected the country to become what it would be. I don't think, you know, I don't even think they really expected the Louisiana Purchase to come as quickly as it did. Because Jefferson really did have to do some wheeling, wheeler dealing there. Uh, wheel, uh, wheeler dealer stuff there. Because uh, that was a little shady. But um, 
they did not really expect the growth. I don't think they expected the disproportionate growth that we ended up having in this country. I definitely don't think they expected us to go coast to coast as quickly as we did, or even at all. But um, what I was, you know, reading earlier is that the larger the population grows, and this makes a lot more sense, when you have a Senate where uh, there's proportional representation, everybody, there's two senators for every state, when you have a Senate, uh, a Senate like that, the larger the population grows, the more power to the small states happens. So obviously, the you know the Senate is the pro the product of the New Jersey plan because the small states said if you give everyone an equal shot, uh, and obviously Virginia didn't like that because they felt they had more people. Now, <clears throat> while at a time in the 1700s, uh, this may have been somewhat fair where the House and the Senate would have equal amounts of power, the the bigger this country gets, uh, and it, it is not growing proportionally, and I think everybody can understand that, the more power the Senate is going to keep getting. So, you know, basically, whoever controls the Senate controls most of the legislative branch. Uh, as you can see right now, the Republicans have the Senate, and the House really can't get anything through the Senate. And I think the other important thing to know about the Senate is the Senate is the only one that's really going to change, where the House, you know, short terms, big states are going to always, big, the whole point of the House is that big states are going to have a, lot, a louder voice, because the whole point of the House is whoever's the loudest kind of gets the, gets the floor. But with the Senate, it's also important to know that the Senate underwent a huge change in 1913, and that's what the, the, 7th, the 17th Amendment is. So up until 1913, just... Put this into perspective, up until 1913, which was a whole, you know, more than a century after this, the Senate was appointed by state legislature. So I just want to let that sink in. You know, we think of the Senate today, you know, more than 100 years after the 17th Amendment as just like the House, we vote for it, you know, we vote for a senator every six years. Well, there's a cycle, so it's more than every six years, but each Senate spot gets voted for every six years. But um, <clears throat> that's not what happened. It was completely appointed. It was a position that was supposed to be held by these old, these, you know, really originally old white men, uh, originally supposed to be held by these more elder statesman types that the political government, the political part of the U.S. really liked and respected. And that is, that is not the case anymore. So I think in a compromise where the Senate is this supposed to be this more deliberative type, they don't have to campaign every two years, they're, they're appointed by members of their own kind of peers. I think now, because we have a Senate that is completely just chosen by the masses, just like the House is, but they also still have all the rights of, you know, a six-year six term, in infinite term limits, they have all that kind of stuff. The Senate is just going to get more and more powerful with the expansion of the country. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I think that's a pretty fair assessment. I think that, as you were saying before, when this country was being created and the Constitution was being put together, no one really accounted for the rapid expansion that was going to happen. Uh, they had no idea that we were going to you know, stretch all the way to California in you know, a very short amount of time. I mean, America's still a young country today. It's only 250 years old around that, around that time. That's a so very history statement to make, by the way. 
What? That's a very history statement to make, by the way. You know, it's only 250 years old. That's, you know, so young. <laughs> well, I mean, I mean, according to, you know, the other empires around the world and everything else that has happened, America's a young country. Yeah, yeah, I, I, agree, I agree with you. I just thought that was really funny. I'm like, <laughs> history. Yeah, no. Um, yeah, no, it's a, it's a young country, and I think that that no one accounted for all of this change and so this is kind of what happens when you compromise but things quickly change so fast mm -hmm. not only when you're compromising as you said no one really has a if you don't have a seat at the table you don't you don't get any benefits of the compromise number one so it's flawed and it's elite in that sense um but number two it's when things change really quickly the compromise just isn't applicable anymore it doesn't it doesn't work because the times are changing so quickly um, and I think that that's a theme that we're going to see as we get deeper into the conversation. Yeah. So now I think, uh, just like before we move on to three-fifths, um, just want to do a little interjection about Madison and just the Virginia plan. Uh, the Virginia plan is, you know, largely benefiting the big the big states such as Virginia, Massachusetts, although because Massachusetts at the time included Maine. So it was actually fairly big. Um, <clears throat> Uh, the Virginia plan, uh, and Madison specifically, Madison would go on to be one of Jefferson's biggest deputies and then the president himself as a very states' rights-driven Democrat. And, um, you know, we talked about that a few episodes ago. But um, the fact that Madison was a supporter of large states and also states' rights is very, you know is very indicative of the whole states right arg states rights argument now states rights argument then it's it's very you know we support the rights of all states but is madison really supporting the rights of rhode island is he supporting the rights of connecticut is he supporting the rights of delaware no he's supporting the rights of the big states most of which at the time were in the south and were his friends and were you know the economy that he wanted to support and the political scene that he wanted to support which, you know, that goes in again. Is he really, you know, just like in it for his people? I don't think so. Yeah, I don't think so either. I think that whenever you're creating a compromise, you know, whoever's creating it does it to support their own political agenda, naturally. Mm -hmm. um, so as we will like see, and as we'll continue to see, there are always two polarizing sides of the compromise. And there are sections that you know, where they meet in the middle, because that's the whole point of a compromise, but the reason why there are polarizing deals, like, or polarizing sections within the same compromise is because you're trying to get the two different viewpoints to meet in the middle, right. um, which is definitely interesting, and that's what we'll see moving forward. Um, yeah. Cool. So, um, so to kind of transition, we ready to do that? Yeah. Okay, cool. Um, so now to transition, we are treating the three-fifths compromise as a kind of glue between, you know, the constitutional compromises and then the um, compromises that led to the Civil War, because this is, the three-fifths compromise is sort of the beginning of the debate about slavery. And it's something that people do not usually, like, lump into the, comp like, the compromises that led to the Civil War, because it's so far, like, earlier in history. Um, but it, it does play a big role. Um, so to quote the Constitution, um, because that's what we're going to do today, um, Article 1, Section 2 of the Constitution states, 
Representatives and direct taxes shall be apportioned among the several states which may be included within this union according to their respective numbers, which shall be determined by adding to the whole number of free persons, including those bound to the service for a term of years and excluding Indians not taxed three fifths of all other persons. So that is directly from the US Constitution. And in this scenario, the other persons, quote, other persons that are mentioned. Um, they are mentioning slaves. And I think that something that the Constitution does that is very interesting is that it mentions slavery in many different parts of it, um, as we will see as history continues and we, you go even deeper into you know, amendments and all of that. It mentions slavery in all of these different scenarios, but it does it in a way that's covert, so you don't Slavery, the word slavery, the word slave, anything that's related to that kind of vocabulary is not mentioned. So it's embedded, but it's embedded in a way that ignores the the ability to address the slavery. You know, they call it the slavery question. It really should not be a question because mm -hmm. the you know the morals of it should be clear. Um, but in in history, the the big problem with all of these compromises, and it starts with the fifth, the three fifths compromise, is that the the founding fathers did not want to address this question and they wanted to push it off as long as they could and so instead of di directly mentioning it they they tried not tried to hide it but they you know indirectly embedded it into the document and now moving forward it just made it just made the the country situation messier and messier um but to kind of bring it back to the three-fifths compromise uh, essentially the northern delegates and others opposed to slavery wanted to count only free persons, um, which included free blacks in the North and South. So if the logic, if that logic were to work and you only counted um, free persons, instead of having that three fifths like proportion, um, the kind of argument that some people like to use is that if you only included free persons, there wouldn't be three fifths, it would be zero fifths. But I don't think that that's a very logical argument because the the northern the people in the north and you know abolitionists and people in that sense um, who oppose slavery that didn't come till later in you know, later in history. But that was not really like the goal. I think that the goal from the north's end wasn't to. I don't know what I'm trying to say. I think it was just to make representation as fair as possible because they knew that the only reason that they were counting, you know, um, enslaved peoples as three fifths wasn't because people in the South necessarily saw them as people, but because they wanted to to gain that upper advantage within their representation. Mm -hmm. um, so that's kind of how the how the doc, how the argument came came about. And so because originally the I South agree. originally the South wanted to just count slaves is just one person because they knew that you know right. it wasn't like slaves were going to vote they were just going to be you know oh we're counted towards our population which then comes back to madison's virginia plan where he was totally planning on counting slaves towards that you know representation in government but it wasn't like any of the slaves were going to be like representatives in the house of representatives yeah i think it's a very double-edged sword because you do you want to acknowledge that that those people are in your country, but the the way that the southern states wanted to do that, that wasn't in a way that benefited enslaved people at all. Right. It was just to benefit. It was to amplify white voices in government, mm -hmm. which, I mean, is characteristic and you know totally 
in line with our nation's history. I mean, we are, our, our nation was founded by, you know, elite white people, not yeah. saying that that's right, not at all. Um, but I think that like the three-fifths compromise kind of embodies that and the whole debate about having, you know, three-fifths instead of one whole person. I don't know. I feel like it's a very double-edged sword because you want to acknowledge them as people, but by doing, like, by counting them toward the population, they still weren't acknowledging them as equal people because they, they weren't given the, you know, re yeah. representation, as you were saying, Sam. So it's it's kind of like you want to acknowledge that they're in, that they're a part of the country, but you're not doing it in a way that validates them as human beings you're doing it in a way that benefits you and amplifies your voice right and i think that's um, kind of i think the reason that this compromise is what you get and not um a compromise that's just giving them more of a valid claim to just representative and representation in this country is, is the north wasn't fighting for the representation of the black slaves they were talking they were fighting for you know they wanted to have more representation so they were like oh yeah they don't count they don't count because that's unethical which they didn't care about the North just wanted, you know, more seats in Congress. So I think once eventually you get abolitionist attitudes and you get uh, more of the North actually being anti-slavery, then it comes to the table of maybe we should actually start giving them a voice instead of just, you know, counting their bodies, which obviously takes a really long time. And even now, the sentiment isn't really fully there because, you know, we wouldn't have Black Lives Matter if you know, everybody believed that Black Lives Matter, uh, unfortunately. But, um, <clears throat> so, yeah, I think that the Three-Fifths Compromise is disgusting. Uh, there's really not much else I, to I say I think about so, that. too. Yeah, it's really not... It's absolutely disgusting, because, and the thing, the thing that makes it even more disgusting is similar to the Connecticut Compromise, this compromise sets the stages for other compromises like it. Yeah. So, the whole issue of, you know, we'll talk about this, like, shortly but you know the missouri compromise comes around and it you know dictates which states um you know can be slave states and which states can be free states that comes around but then the whole issue of popular sovereignty comes up where you can allow states to decide what their status is but all of those issues it's all about representation mm -hmm. and that that is directly tr traced back to the three-fifths compromise that is also directly only rate related to you know, representation and i think it's disgusting how it's it's the one thing that people go back to is representation that's the only thing that they they care about you know and you think about um, you know you you talk about how these are all ingrained and these are all you know these all kind of go back to three-fifths compromise it's it's because three-fifths compromise not only was it a, an act of congress it was a it was a law that wasn't just a law, it was part of the Constitution of the United States when it was established. So, like, this was this was in the Constitution before freedom of speech was in the Constitution. So, like, if you think about that, like, counting black people as less than white people was more important to everyone at the Constitutional Convention. Not just because this is a compromise. This is what they came up with after they argued. Counting black people as less than white people was more important than freedom of speech, right to bear arms, uh, no unnecessary search without a warrant, uh, what's another one, uh, no double jeopardy, no cruel and unusual punishment, uh, the, the living, breathing constitution idea hadn't, didn't exist at the time. Uh, all of those things came three years later with the Bill of Rights. So... That's just, it, it's just absurd. 
that, you know... It is absurd. It's absurd that, like, this was what they were putting in, and then... And this is what allowed them to actually have a constitution. So when when someone like, you know, and I'm just going to go off on a little bit of a rant here. When someone like Joe Biden says that Donald Trump is the first racist president, and I am in no way a Trump supporter, but... Someone needs to just show them the three fifths compromise because a lot of president, a lot of four, a lot of future presidents were in the room when that happened. Yes, and yes, all of those people, no matter what side of the compromise they're on, because the compromise ended up going on the page, are racist. Like you, you, you can't argue around that. It, it, they at least have some form of racism in their in their minds, and they, or at least they were okay with racism, which is racism on its own so there you go that's the it's it's yeah just, it's disgusting absolutely and i think that's something that we can even compare to is the fact that that this the three-fifths compromise made it into the constitution but nothing in the original constitution or the bill of rights mentions directly the right to, like who can vote mm -hmm. nothing in the original constitution or the bill of rights mentions who is eligible to vote at all. Voting is not mentioned in the original part of the Constitution or the original Bill of Rights. And so it's only added in other like later amendments that talks about who can vote and eligibility and all of that. So the fact that this made it into the Constitution before, you know, clearly outlining who could vote, like that just is is so weird to me because we put so much value on voting because we we you know our country's a democracy and it runs on voting but the fact that voting didn't make it into the original constitution and and this did like that's just even more you know appalling to me yeah i think that you know before free speech before voting before any of those like things that we would like to characterize as our you know our country today i think it just speaks to the the racism that has always existed and you know continues to exist Mm -hmm. And when we talk about systemic, like you can't get more systemic than in the Constitution. Than this, <laughs> yes. But uh, absolutely, yeah. So let's move on to uh, the Missouri Compromise of eighteen twenty. Uh, should I kick okay. it off? Okay. Or do you want to? Yeah, you can talk a little bit about it. Yeah. All right. Cool. So the Missouri Compromise of eighteen twenty, uh, rightly named after, well, actually, I'd say it's half right named, uh, because it was specifically talking about Missouri and Maine. And um, pretty much at this point, we had had a bunch of new states, uh, but, you know, slavery started to become more of an issue, which it's just so horrible to have to say that, that like slavery became more of an issue. But again, here we are. Uh, yeah, so slavery became more of a vocal issue, I guess I'll say, because of course it was always an issue. Um, it became more of, a, more talked about. And the North... You know, once again, not for the right reasons, but started to become more, you know, more anti-slavery. I wouldn't say abolitionist yet, but anti-slavery. Uh, and at this point, you have the North establishing an economy that isn't based on slavery and the South establishing an economy that is totally based on slavery. Not saying the North is innocent, but once again, the North really didn't have the, the things to... The North didn't have the same things to lose by abolishing slavery. So they could kind of do it, but still kind of support it. Uh, and then Missouri is going to be added as a slave state. So uh, the North is pissed about this because once again, it comes back to the idea of representation in Congress where, you know, okay, now there's going to be a whole two more senators 
and however many more representatives are now going to be for the slave side. So really, is it the slave side or is it the south side? But again, the north, you know, sketchy. But um, <clears throat> I mean, the south is more sketchy, but the north needs to be accountable too. Uh, but yeah, so you know, you have this, you have this Missouri Missouri territory being added as a state on the slave, in in the in the south on the as a slave state that allows the trade and owning of other people and um it's just such a okay this <laughs> is trade and owning of other people and um the north says okay we want to balance that out so we're going to add a new state as maine and then they realize okay we can't just like keep doing this where we just make a new state just to counteract you making a new state or vice versa so they create something called the mason Dix mason dixon line at 3630 latitude thank thank you for the stat katie uh <laughs> and uh, yeah the mason dixon line basically says if you're above it you're free if you're below it you're a slave uh, or slave state free state slave state um and you want to take it from here um yeah so basically the missouri compromise was you know in in play for a little while until, like we had mentioned earlier, you know, when the country moves so quickly, you know, compromises can only keep up to a certain extent. Um, so eventually, the Missouri Compromise was repealed by the Kansas-Nebraska Act. And so going into that a little bit, um, the Kansas-Nebraska Act, of course, repealed the Missouri Compromise. It created two new territories, and it allowed for popular sovereignty, which is the idea that a state can choose its status, whether it is a free state or a slave state. Um, it produced a violent uprising known as Bleeding Kansas, and that occurred because pro-slavery and anti-slavery activists flooded into the territories so that they could influence the vote. Um, and the Kansas-Nebraska Act is really important because it destroyed the Whig Party and led to the creation of the Republican Party led by Abraham Lincoln. Mm -hmm. And Stephen Douglas was one of the major players in establishing the Kansas-Nebraska Act. Um, and he had, you know, basically endorsed it as a peaceful settlement of national issues, but it was essentially a prelude to the Civil War. Um, and so the Kansas-Nebraska Act is very important because not only does it invalidate the Missouri Compromise, but it ultimately leads to the Civil War because of all of the like, domino effects that it created. Um, in addition to being repealed by the Kansas-Nebraska Act, the Missouri Compromise was declared unconstitutional by the Supreme Court um, via the Dred Scott decision. Um, and the Dred Scott decision ruled that Congress did not have the authority to prohibit slavery in the territories. And this, in my opinion, this decision was absolutely repulsive because it it invalidated the right for, you know, people to you know live the way that they had like said. I don't, I don't know what I'm trying to say, but it. It was basically it basically precursor. endorses slavery. Yep. It endorses slavery because it says you're not allowed to prohibit slavery anywhere. But that takes away from the argument of states' rights because you're saying you're not allowed to choose what is like right for like your state. Right. Like. And that's kind of going into like the idea of like popular sovereignty. Like I'm not saying that like you should choose to like 
be a slave state. Like that's not like choosing to enslave people is not okay. Like I'm not endorsing that. But at the same time, like people tooted states' rights, but then the Dred Scott decision clearly says like you can't prohibit slavery anywhere. Like what? Right. That's I, that to me just doesn't make sense. And I think that you know while I disagree with the right that people should choose to you know enslave people and become a slave state, I don't think that's right. Of course, I don't think any of us do. Um, but yeah, I think it's hypocritical. It's yeah. hypocritical to say, well, we have states' rights, but no, actually, like, you cannot prohibit slavery anywhere. Like, you could, you, you know, mm -hmm. I just think it's, yeah, it's yeah. terrible. And I think, I think the Dred Scott case, uh, as sad as it is, it just gets kind of worse because the Dred Scott case is a precursor to the Fugitive Slave Act, which, uh, do you want to move into the Compromise of 1850 or do you have anything else to say? You can move, move so the Fugitive Slave Act, uh, as we talked about in the um, history of political parties briefly, uh, basically said that even though there were free slaves, and there were free states and slave states, if a slave from one of the slave states escaped to the north or to the free states, really, um, they would have to be, if seen by a citizen in the north, returned to the south. And if they weren't, or if the citizen in the north tried to harbor the slave, they could be fined or even jailed. And basically, what this is doing, as you were saying uh, really well earlier, is it's basically prohibiting slavery. It's basically prohibiting, prohibiting anti-slavery everywhere in the country. So yeah, there are free states where there's no slave trade, but that doesn't mean that slaves aren't are free in those states. They were, you know, they were hiding the Underground Railroad, for example went through a lot of free territory, even though, you know, it wasn't like, you know, they just got to, you know, Ohio or wherever was a free state and they were fine. A lot of them had to go to Canada. And, you know, that's, that's just like, you know, we, we talk about the North being the free states, but really it was just the, it was the free states of no, they were free of trade. Because again, the, the only thing that this country really saw slaves as uh, until real radical abolitionists came to power came to came to be even uh was was a tradable commodity and that's a sad truth and it is you know something that we have to be accountable with no matter where you live in the country there was it was a it was a disgusting foundation that this country kind of built itself upon and the compromise of 1850 though uh actually has a lot of different parts i think the fugitive slave act is definitely the most the most well-known part but uh, <clears throat> so first, it's it's five bills put into one big compromise, and they passed a bunch of things because of it. So the first one, it permitted slaves in Washington D.C. Sorry, permitted slaves in Washington D.C., but it outlawed the slave trade, which is another thing that I was talking about earlier, where you know you have the ability to have slaves there, but you can't trade. So there's a, another compromise there, of you know the North really giving the South what they want, even though they're kind of making themselves feel a little better that they're not really selling the slaves. But again, the capital of the United States now in 1850, you can have slaves. Uh, then California is added as a free state. Uh, and then Utah and New Mexico are given uh, the choice based on popular sovereignty, which, as Katie said earlier, led more to tensions because now they have to decide. And um, <clears throat> the other one was new borders for Texas, but that's just kind of more of us screwing over Texas after we annexed them, even though they were really just trying to become their own thing. 
but you know we were an imperialist power in that in that time and into much of the next century so uh i think the compromise of 1850 the thing that we really need to know is that this is this is the most direct cause of the civil war that i mean besides the firing on fort sumter which is literally the direct cause of the civil war this is the most direct cause via compromise that you that you're going to get like mm-hmm. they you know they gave the they gave the south a mile on this i i really do think that the south you know asked for an inch and the compromise of 1850 just kind of set them it set the the anti-slavery movement back very far and that's just not that's just not good i don't think that's a you know the the compromise of 1850 really didn't get any wins for the north or really any wins for anybody with good morals and it just made more you know more tension uh henry clay and stephen douglas the same stephen douglas that did bleeding kansas and the same, the same uh, Stephen Douglas who uh, ran, run against would run against Lincoln in 1860, uh, would orchestrate it. Henry Clay, being a prominent Whig of the Northeast, uh, so as you can say, all these guys were in cahoots. Uh, compromise or no compromise, all of them were, you know, somewhat in cahoots and none of them were really fully above board. Yeah. I think to like kind of transition into like modern day, I think that something that has come up is the the way that American history is taught. And I think in particular when talking about the, you know, the Civil War and the antebellum period and all of everything that led up to, you know, the Civil War as we as we learn about. Um, we always talk about all of these compromises, right? And I think that there is there's a danger in doing that because I feel like it justifies almost like the South's thinking. Like it when something is taught from both angles, which I definitely think like there is value in knowing all sides of a all sides of a coin, all all angles, right? Mm-hmm. Um, when you emphasize what you're teaching so much on, like for example, sl- slavery was kept in the South and it was the South's justification to keep it because it made their economy, it made their economy work. I think that instead of stressing something like that, it's important for us to stress that the people who owned those plantations, they could have done that work. Like it was their plan, like they could have done that, but they chose not to because of the way that they viewed, um, you know, people of color and um, black Americans. Yeah, and they didn't even, they didn't even have to do the work. Arguments. They didn't even. They could have just. Yeah. They could have just paid the slaves. Like it's, you know. It's literally yeah. Like they could have done the work themselves. A. They could have paid you know the people that they, you know number two. But they didn't do that because of all of the reasons that you know we all know today. But I think that it's really it does all Americans a disservice. I think to focus too much on the southern side of the compromises because as a society, I feel like we're trying to move away from that. And I think that the more we teach these compromises and the more we rely heavily on both sides of it in terms of placing the the compromises in the context of today, I think that that needs to happen more so that it's saying like, yes, these are all the compromises that happened, but this is why they didn't work. They didn't work because they were not clearly planned out. They didn't work because the country moved too fast. 
they didn't work because they were immoral. Like, and not immoral in the sense that you know only the only the South created them. The North had a had a part in creating them too. I think that mm-hmm. something else that is not acknowledged in the way history is taught today is that the North like was a you know a bystander to slavery for a really long time. Like, not in the sense that they didn't do anything to stop it, but I think that people always overplay the... I feel like people think that there are a lot more abolitionists in the North than there really were. I think that at that time, you know, being an abolitionist was rare. It was a very small percentage of the population that really opposed and wanted to dismantle slavery. And not only was it rare, it was was dangerous. Like, it wasn't wasn't a really liked position. No, it wasn't. And I think that going into like, yes, it's great to talk about these compromises because they, they, like I said earlier, maybe not the most eloquent way of saying it, but they, but they were the gears of how our country began, you know, but just because they're gears of how the country began doesn't mean that they should be how the country runs today. I totally do not think that because all of these things did not work. And all of these things, you know, are they hurt a group of people, you know, they hurt, they hurt a group or groups or, you know, they, they just hurt a ton of people. So I'm happy we talked, like we've talked about it today, but I think that like doing, going in the, going forward, when talking about compromises, we need to kind of acknowledge and lean into how, yes, there are compromises, but they do have their, their dangers, you know? I totally agree. I think that, you know, we, we live in a, a world where, a lot of these things are just non-negotiable. Black Lives Matter is a non-negotiable, it's a non-negotiable yes. issue. It's a non-negotiable statement. And, you know, we look at civil rights as this great, just not just for not just for black people, the civil rights movement where you had, you know, getting extra gay rights and getting black rights and getting all this kind of stuff as this great victory for society and for culture and all this kind of stuff. Uh, but really that's that's all just a big Civil rights, the civil rights movement of the 60s was just a big compromise. And right now, I think we're at the risk of compromising again, where, yes, you know, mm-hmm. taking, you know, uh, getting a few, you're getting an inch every couple of years because the, the powers that be will give it to us is not justice. It's not fair. It's not moral. And it's all it is, is it's compromise. It's saying, hey, we see how passionate you are about this because obviously you'd be passionate about it if it's your life. Uh, but so we're going to give you something, you know, and then because we're going to give you something now, we just want you to lay off a little bit. And I think that's a problem where like this, this country expects that to be the norm where, you know, when the North and even like, you know, when even the South, when they were writing the constitution, Thomas Jefferson said he was anti-slavery. He said he was trying to ban slavery, yet he had thousands of his own. So, you know, the the even the, the, the open the completely empty statements like that, the you know, acts that take, you know, take one focus and deal with one problem in a sea of problems, yes, it's progress. And I think progress for a long time has been the norm. And I think progress for a long time has been what people accept. And I think progress for a long time hasn't been enough. Because I think progress implies there's more to do. But progress also implies that the people that could do it 
don't want to because it's too hard or it's not what they want to do morally or they're just not good people. (laughs) Right. Yeah, I think that, I just think that there's something really telling that at the very beginning of our country when the constitution was being created, we used we used people's lives and we threw people's lives in the balance to put them in a compromise. And I, I just don't, that's, I just still can't wrap my mind around it. Human beings should not be a part of a compromise, like it period, like it shouldn't be an issue. And the fact that these, these compromises, if you look at it, I mean, if you think about it with history, what I like about history is you learn something new every day because you, you look at something and then you you reevaluate it again and you you know you gain a new perspective that aside i think these compromises have kind of played a bigger role in today's society than we think because if it weren't for compromises putting human lives in the balance throughout our history that wouldn't be the norm that because people's lives are still thrown in the balance you know people's lives are still thrown in politics and which, which is where they don't belong. You know, so I think that, Sam, you're absolutely right. Po- progress is not enough. We need to change the way we view, you know, these, quote, solutions we make, because most of the time they're not solutions. They're just, you know, quick fixes. Yeah, quick fixes so. and justifications for ego. Like, I was just thinking another, another really solemn example is, like, Japanese internment, for example. When we interned and put, you know, Japanese people in concentration camps in this country during World War II, you know, our, our big justification was it was, you know, yes, we're doing this horrible thing, but we're doing it for the safety of the country. <laughs> and like, that's one example. I think you know, this whole, you know, doing something bad, but with a caveat that makes you feel like you're not a bad person, that, um, we are going to steal all of the Native American land, but we're going to give them reservations. Or, yeah, we're going to have these self-made billionaires that make all of their money off of the labor of lesser fortunate people, and then they're going to give the money, they're going to give a fraction of that money to charity. It's like all these, like, little things where you just make a little compromise to make yourself feel more morally adept, and then you just go on with your day because now you can you can sleep at night. And... If you just, I, just the, as we're having this conversation, I'm just thinking of more and more examples of, you know, compromises that we make and just not just even compromises, but just justifications that we make for horrible actions that this country does simply because that's just our nature. It's the American way. The American way is to, you know, to never, never apologize, but always just come up with a reason for why you're doing something. Yeah, I think just like a nice way to close it off is history is, I mean, Sam and I both love learning about it because obviously that's what we're in college to do. Um, History is great to learn about for many reasons. And I think that one of those reasons is it's important to scrutinize the country that you live in because you're the ones, at the end of the day, you're the person voting. You're the person who's weighing in on how the future of this country should go. And I just don't think that if you're going to play an active role in making those decisions and picking the people to lead your country in the future, you need to critically look at the past and you need to constantly reevaluate. And as new as new situations come about, you do need to evaluate them, you know, in how with that change perspective in mind. 
I think that constantly looking at the past and constantly learning and challenging yourself to to think about it in a different way is is invaluable really it's something that every person in this country has to do and should do because that's the only way that we're going to not repeat history mm-hmm. really i think i believe full heart full heartedly that's not <laughs> i believe wholeheartedly that the only reason not the only reason there are many reasons to learn history but the primary reason to learn history is so that you don't repeat it yeah. and i think that the first step in not repeating it is to teach it in a way that gives that new perspective that gives that well these shouldn't be even be looked at as compromises because they they deal with human lives like these shouldn't be looked at as political tactics because it deals with the debate of whether or not someone should be considered a person which just that as we have said is a, that should never be a debate yeah yeah, it shouldn't even be a debate, but our country has made things like that a debate. And I think that constantly scrutinizing that is something that that needs to happen in our education system, individually, with our families, as many conversations that you can have that do that is great. And I think that that's kind of something that is motivating us to continue talking about this. I hope that we we bring that value to the table and have question your your viewers, you as viewers, I hope we change your perspective a little bit and help you think about it in a different way yeah so i think that's a great that's thing I got. so uh yeah. so um i'm just gonna you know do our standard customary ending uh we are on google Podcasts, spotify breaker overcast pocketcast and radio public and in the next three or so episodes i've heard a rumor that you have to get to 10 we will be on the coveted apple podcasts eventually so yeah uh we are really enjoying making this podcast for you guys we're really hoping that you're enjoying it um we'll be back on wednesday uh you got anything else to say no i'm good thanks for you know having me again um i love doing this yeah me too all right cool so uh hope you guys have a great couple of days i can't say week this time because we're going to be back on wednesday but uh yeah signing off for now see ya.